Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscalia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. My name is Dr. Jonathan Biscalia, and I am professor of medicine at the Stony Brook University School of Medicine on Long Island. And this month, I'm pleased to be talking to Dr. David Graham about the topic of H. pylori. Dr. Graham is professor of medicine, microbiology, and molecular virology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and at the Michael E. DeBakey VAMC. And as many of you know, Dr. Graham is the world's expert on this topic of Helicobacter pylori. So, Dr. Graham, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, you know, I think, uh, I believe most of our listeners are, are certainly familiar with your work. As If you've been in our field for more than a year, <laughs> you certainly know your name at H. pylori. But I have to say, you know, in preparation for our conversation, I, I did some uh, some looking on on PubMed and, and all your previous publications, and I, I just can't believe that you've been studying the topic of H. pylori for uh, over 30 years, it seems. Um, uh, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you have over 600 publications on this topic, and uh, going back to, to 1990 or, or sooner, and I, it's just so impressive to me to to uh, be talking with somebody who's dedicated an entire life's work um, to something which is so important to our field. So I just wanted to put that out there. And How did you get interested? Uh, when or why did you get interested in studying H. pylori earlier on in your career? Well, I, I, I started life as a, basically as a clinical investigator. And one of the areas that we were interested in was uh, peptic ulcer disease because that was the hottest topic in gastroenterology at the time. And uh, so we were developing drugs like H2 blockers and PPIs, and then along came uh, the cause, which we've been looking for for years. And, and we also were doing things in infectious disease. We were working rotavirus and norovirus and intertoxigenic E. coli. So we had a, a laboratory that could to do that. And so here comes Gray Marshall saying, I found a cause. Uh, uh, without any really hard data at the time. And so we said, well, well, we'll see if we can confirm that. In fact, the first time I was asked about it, they said, is it true? And I said, well, if it's wrong, it will be easily disproven. <laughs> and, and so we set out to test it. And of course, it was not wrong. Uh, and it's continued since that day. Wow. So I want to I want to ask you uh, for our listeners, like, you know, how prevalent is H. pylori in the U.S. Um, if you had to put that in perspective, and and specifically, how does that compare to you know where H. pylori is in other countries? Well, if you consider 1900, maybe that uh, everybody had it, and then it started to disappear, and it started to disappear first in the higher socioeconomic classes, and worked its was working its way down through. Uh, the, the lower socioeconomic classes. And so by 1970, it was about 50%. Uh, and uh, with that would being, let's say, 15 or 20% in 
upper class uh, 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 socioeconomic class and, and still maybe 60 or 70 percent and particularly in minorities. Uh, and it's continued to decline in the, in the people who have lived in America, but we're importing it every day because the people that come across the, the border in Texas, uh, it's probably 80% are infected. And so it really depends on your population. If you deal with the indigent population, uh, it may be 30, 40%, or maybe 80%. If you deal with the, the, you know, the, the rich folk, uh, it'll probably be five or 6%. I mean, why, why is that? I mean, it, it, this goes to, this sort of goes to my question about transmission. I mean, uh, is, is it fecal oral transmission? And, and what is your, I, you know, it sounds like an elementary question probably to you, but I, I don't think we really think about that much. So how is it really transmitted? Well, it's, it's, it's transmitted typically from mother to kid. Uh, okay. And the, the key to that is, is household hygiene. Okay. Uh, and so when you when we got clean water and everybody had indoor plumbing, et cetera, uh, it started to decrease. But in families, poor families, you know, there would be three or four kids in a bed. And right. so mama would give it to one kid. And then that kid would, would vomit and have diarrhea and spread it all to the rest of them. And you remember, even not very long ago, uh, we didn't have baby food, Gerber's or Right. So if mama was going to feed the, the kid, it, she did pre-mastication. You can imagine uh, an Asian mother, particularly, you know, going to get feed the baby fish. Right. She's definitely not going to give that kid a fish bone. Right. And so she's going to test it first. And so when people did that regularly, uh, it was a, a good way of transmitting the disease. Interesting. So if we take it from uh, acquiring the initial infection and then fast forward to uh, sort of the long-term effects of H. pylori, uh, what are, uh, you know, untreated H. pylori, what are the long-term effects of that infection and, 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 and taking it even further, you know, does this lead to unnecessary hospitalizations? Can you just talk a little bit about the chronic um, sort of results of an ongoing chronic infection with H. pylori? Well, back in the in the 70s, you know, it was peptic ulcer. 10% of people had peptic ulcer. We did 140,000 ulcer operations in 1970. Uh, gastric cancer in 1930 or 40 or 50, all the way up to 1970, was number one. So, so let me let me stop you there. Is it you you are we're not doing that anymore? Obviously. So, do you think that's because of the uh, sort of um, PPI therapy? Is that because of eradication of H. pylori? What, what do you think? Well, in the past, once you had, for example, a peptic ulcer, it was said once an ulcer, always an ulcer. But now that's a one-off. Yeah. And uh, and so uh, and with the improvement in diet, for example. In the past, and, and not you know not very long ago, everything didn't have vitamins C in it or vitamins, and so in the in the winter people were often subscorputic, and this really let the bacteria grow and get it have a, a great field day. Awesome. Uh, so the improvement in diet and and nutrition and sanitation makes the progression of the disease less, and therefore gastric cancer less, even though. Uh, it's still a possibility. And they do need ulcer because like I say it's a one-off. You get it and we find it and we cure the disease and you don't get it again. Interesting. Interesting. So um, 
do you think that um, as you know, with treatment, like you said, uh, performing, you know, so many surgeries for peptic ulcer disease, but getting back to my question about sort of preventing ulcers and preventing the long-term consequences of this chronic infection, um, have we really uh, present, uh, sort of prevented unnecessary hospitalizations by sort of how we've uh, dealt with H. pylori over the past 30 years? Uh, probably not. Uh because you know we we've not looked at it as uh, a public health issue that we need to address and get rid of. Hmm. Uh, I mean, they are doing that in some other countries now, mm-hmm. and and the new guidelines for uh, for evaluation patients for for testing suggest that. For example, that you know suggested now when a patient comes in uh, and and you find the disease that you look at all the rest of the family members. Mm-hmm. Or if they come in and they're in a socioeconomic or ethnic group that has high frequency, you test them. And if they're positive, you test the whole family. Yeah. Uh, and so that we're, we're starting to move towards eliminating the disease. Okay. But again, at the same time, we're importing lots of it. Right. So um, let me give you a clinical scenario. Uh, you, know, you see a patient for uh, dyspepsia. And in that workup, you, you diagnose them with H. pylori and you treat them. And we'll talk about treatment uh, in a few minutes. But um, what should we be doing with those uh, relatives of, the, of that patient? Should we be testing first-degree relatives? Should we only be focusing on uh, people that are co- cohabitants of the home? Or what, do you, what should we be doing there? Well, you know, we don't have a definite answer to that. We have, you know, the, the guidelines suggest testing anybody that lives in the same household. Okay. I, I, I like to test anybody that's a first degree relative uh, of them if they're, if they're willing. Okay. Okay. And so also the guidelines talk about testing. So let's, let's talk a little bit about testing. Um, you know, tell me about, you know, the different types of tests and what you think, you know, what, you know, sort of the pros and cons, if you don't mind of each of them. And I'd like to get your thoughts on the various ways we test for it. Well, in, in the past, the serology was the number one test, but uh, it's not a very good test because it's, it's not got a, false, a lot of false positives. Mm-hmm. And so actually the government by and large quit paying for it. So at least that's reduced the, the <laughs> use. Uh, so I tell people, if you do it, confirm it with a, a, a test for active infection, like a stool antigen test or urea breath test. But the our best simple tests are the urea breath test and the stool antigen test for diagnosing active infection. Yeah. Of course, if you're doing endoscopy, you can do biopsy. Right, right, which is often, um, you know, at least for the gastroenterologist, often uh, sort of part of the workup for, for dyspepsia. Oftentimes, these patients are on PPI or they've been tried on PPI um, sort of while they're being worked up for their upper GI symptoms, um, and uh, that can interfere with, with testing. So how do we manage that? And you know, if you could tell us exactly how this might interfere with, with H. pylori testing when someone's already on a PPI. Well, the PPIs, we're not sure how, but they reduce the bacterial load. And so they, they tend to make your, your positive your test false negative. And we, therefore we recommend that uh, if you know you're gonna test the patients, you uh, wait two weeks. If they need a uh, anti-secretary drug, you can give them H2 blockers because that doesn't interfere uh, 
of course, that's another place you could do your serology if you still have it available. Mm-hmm. And then if it's positive, you want to go stop those drugs when you're doing the actual tests. Mm-hmm. Let's let me let me change it around a little bit. Let's say you have a patient who um, you're not suspecting H. pylori at all, but you're wanting to put that patient on long-term PPI therapy, say uh, for their uh, GERD um, and reflux symptoms. Should those people be tested for H. pylori before doing that? Uh, And the reason I ask here is the concern over, um, you know, long-term PPI therapy, uh, risk of uh, intestinal metaplasia, atrophic gastritis, and gastric neoplasia, you know, sort of being doubled, if you will, between PPI and the potential for uh, an undiagnosed H. pylori infection. So what should we be doing about those patients that we're going to use PPI long-term in? Now, when in doubt, one to test because when you put them on anti-secretory drugs, the bacteria are normally have a very difficult time taking hold of the corpus, gastric mm. corpus. And once you suppress the acid, they just have a field day and, and spread all over the stomach. Mm. Uh, but people with, with GERD less frequently have it also. But I think it's, it's, it's safest and best to test and if it's present to eradicate. Okay. So on that topic, uh, one thing that frequently comes up a lot is this inverse uh, relationship um, between GERD, Barrett's esophagus, and H. pylori. And uh, not being an expert um, in H. pylori, um, and I've heard various things that it depends on whether it's corpus predominant or, or, or not. Um, can, you, can you shed some light on this uh, relationship between reflux and H. pylori? Well, if, if, you, if you go back, again, 40 years, uh, oh, many patients with duodenal ulcer, in fact, most had reflux. Yeah. And so they, but because they made a lot of acid, but they also had HP, but it was only in the antrum. Uh, once uh, that disease group went away, uh, still to have reflux, you're, you're most likely, more likely to have, you know, higher acids. Uh, and so, and in fact, if you have atrophic gastritis, you just simply rarely get reflux. So there's this obvious built-in protective group, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if people worried that if you eradicated H. pylori, that, you know, you would increase acid secretion and that would increase reflux and cause more Barrett's. And, and it, you know, Barrett's has gone up a little bit. I mean, it was uh, 10 years ago, it and, and, and uh, small bowel cancer were s- equal in prevalence. Uh, hmm. and it, but it, it's, it's doubled and tripled, but it's still not a very common disease. Right. So it, probably eradication of H. pylori has increased the number of patients with more acid reflux and more bears, but the, the, the effect has been small. We've taken a cancer that affected men and women equally and given it now to one that's primarily in men and rare. And the other yeah. one was the number one cancer. So the trade-off has is, is been a great trade-off, but there's a, a little bad downside of it. I understand, yeah. Unless you're a Barrett guy, then it's a great thing. <laughs> I wanna just pause here uh, in our conversation with Dr. Graham and, and take a moment to thank our sponsor, Cook Medical. Uh, for supporting the ASGE and our Listen In podcast series. 
also thanking Cook for their uh, devotion to uh, advancing innovation in the field of GI endoscopy. So thank you, Cook. Um, David, I want this is this is really fascinating. It's interesting. I, a lot of these questions I'm asking you, these are just questions I've had over the years. So um, I think that I would I would imagine a lot of our listeners have have similar uh, questions. So I'm hoping this is helpful for everyone. Um, let's. Um, Let's sort of uh, focus now a little bit about uh, a, a treatment, but actually before I do that, I, I was I, I wanted to be sure that I asked you about biopsies. It seems like recently on all our podcasts, no matter what topic we're talking about, we're talking a lot about biopsies. So um, one thing that comes up with trainees across the land is uh, where and how many biopsies to take um, when you're doing an EGD exam and you're suspecting uh, H. pylori. So, uh, can you answer that one for me? Well, we actually, you know, did studies of that long ago, and it ended up in what's called the Sydney system. Uh, we did uh, map biopsies, twenty-nine biopsies from all over the stomach, and we, <laughs> and we looked at, at where we found Helicobacter and where we found uh, atrophy, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out that that the the, the best spot was the gastric angles. And then, so it came out if you did one antrum and uh, and one anterior and, and posterior and one corpus anterior and posterior and the anglus, you had nearly a hundred percent chance of of getting H. pylori if it was present. And also some idea about the the, the stomach's integrity, whether it's atrophy or intestinal aplasia, et cetera. Mm. So that that's kind of where the Sydney system came from. And so that's what we we recommend. We recommend that you. You put the two antrobiopsies in one bottle and the two corpus biopsies in another bottle because when the corpus is atrophic, it looks like the antrum and the pathologist has a hard time telling them apart. Uh, for my fellows, uh, you know, they, they somehow, uh, they've gone to these little, very teeny tiny biopsy forceps. Mm -hmm. And when I go look at the specimen, you know, they got like six cells. Mm. And, and if you're going to do a biopsy, you know, one should use a reasonable size biopsy forceps. And that's it really amazing what, what people send me to look at. It's, it's just junk yeah. or uh, at least a, a large cut biopsy forceps. Yeah. All of our experiments were done with jumbos. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but go back, if you will, and tell me again about the, re the rationale for separating um, antrum and corpus, because I think, I think a lot of people do not do that. And, um, and, and I want to, I want to hit home the clinical sort of implications of that. So. Well, the, the corpus, you get test, you get a, a pseudopyloric metaplasia in the corpus when it's, when it, you're getting atrophy and the pathologist just can't tell that from antrum unless they stain for pepsinogen one. Okay. Uh, and, and, uh, and so therefore, if there's no atrophy, fine. And nowadays with our, with our special scopes, you know, we can probably tell that, that there's not atrophic stomach. But as you know, people don't look at stomachs anymore. I mean, <laughs> they just were colonoscopists. Right. And, and, it's, and we do a poor job because we don't see cancer, et cetera, anymore. And, and so, uh, you know, it's amazing what uh, we don't train our fellows to see primarily because it's rare. Everything yeah. is rare. Yeah. 
yeah, though, I think I think as you move on in your career and you do uh, and you see that more and more and you're you're out of fellowship, you're you're in your career and you're doing a lot of endoscopy. I think you do eventually start to pick up the subtleties of of what endoscopically what atrophic gast, you know, gastritis looks like. And, you know, when you do an endoscopy and you suspect, say, that there may be some intestinal metaplasia, I have found over the years sort of personally, anecdotally, that I'm much more able to do that. Uh, but I think you're right. Um, you know, we don't train it because we don't see it a lot during fellowship. And it's just another biopsy from a, you know, random part of the antrum or the body. So um, that's interesting. And that's the other point. If people to never do random biopsies because you, you can't, you can't tell where they came from. Yeah. Uh, if, the nice thing about it, if you do uh, anterior and posterior, that least atrophy, you know, goes up to the lesser curve first. So if you have the two biopsies and you know one's atrophic and the other's not, you know which one is which. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of information you can get from putting them in two models. Okay. That's helpful. Probably, probably pathologist makes more money and happier with you. <laughs> so uh, before I'm sure the question a lot of people may be asking is uh, treatment refractory cases. But before we get there, give us your, if you don't mind, uh, your, your general approach to treatment. How should we be looking at that? You know, um, expand on this a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, the, the treatment's really changed uh, in the last uh, a year, or just actually right now, it's, it's undergoing change uh, because uh, we have now gotten universally availability to do susceptibility testing. Okay. And we didn't have that. And so you, you couldn't do it, and, and therefore you didn't worry about it. But now, because it's available, for example, all the major laboratories like Mayo Clinic and Quest and LabCorp, et cetera, do culture. Yeah. And, and uh, the American Molecular Laboratory does molecular testing. And both the Mayo Clinic and the American Molecular Laboratory do testing on stool. Uh, Mayo Clinic only to, for clorithromycin, the, the, the other one on for all six antibiotics. So you could just send a stool specimen. And so there's no reason to say, I don't know what's going on. So what we start now is to say, as a, just to say, what what am I going to use? Well, I know that that triple therapy with, with corithromycin or metronidazole or levofloxacin is likely to fail because resistance to those three antibiotics is very high. So I really only have two therapies. I have bismuth quadruple therapy, and I have a, a, a rifibutin triple therapy. Okay. That's either Talicia or, or uh, generic. And the same way with, uh, with bismuth quadruple therapy, it's either Polera or generic. Uh, the problem with Polera is that they, it was brought out in the, in the marketing because the other therapy was 14 days, they brought it out for 10. And the outcome was peptic ulcer healing and not. H. pylori, so they, they were able to get by with that. Okay. So it's, it, in America, where metronidazole resistance is common, 14 days is better. So my first therapy is going to be bismuth quadruple therapy. But I, I've got to tell the patient, you're going to have side effects. 50% of the people are going to have side effects. Yeah. And so I've got to tell them, you know, if you have those, you got to ride it through. And, and if you talk to them, it's such that you can significantly improve uh, compliance. And uh, so that's my first therapy. My fallback therapy would be, again, the rifibutin. And then uh, when in doubt, 
I'll send for susceptibility testing. So when you say when in doubt, is that uh, after a patient um, comes back, finishes treatment, goes through, you know, testing for documentation that they're eradicated or what? When is your reflex to susceptibility testing? Well, I can do that. I can do that. Uh, depends on what kind of laboratory I'm using and, and what kind of funds I have. Uh, if you have, for example, if you send a stool test for to the Mayo Clinic, and they can they can reflexively, if it's positive, do susceptibility testing for clarithromycin. Or if you send it to American Molecular, they reflexively can do tests right then for all six antibiotics. Really? So the inf- you get the information back. And it's actually a lot cheaper than an endoscopy. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, a, a more practical approach. Then you know what to do. And so, do you, and so you do you reserve that because I would imagine like most hospital systems, right? Your your system there, if you just test a patient for uh, H. pylori stool antigen, it's going to be an in-house test. Um, so I'm guessing you reserve this for patients who you you want to make sure that they've eradicated, right? You don't do this. You're not sending out stool antigens for to the Bayo Clinic or to ARUP or whoever uh, on every on every patient that you're testing for H. pylori, correct? Or well, some 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 uh, hospitals do. Do they? Okay. Um, and just because you know the hospitals like to send out stuff, and uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it really depends on on your situation. Okay. Uh, and uh, so every patient's kind of individualized. You know, if a patient comes in to you and and it's a, a solid citizen that's not been taking a bunch of antibiotics, etc., and you don't, you know, you think that they're going to have a good luck. You know, I don't worry about it, but otherwise I, I like susceptibility. Anytime they failed in the past or anytime they referred to me, they have failed in the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, often with five treatments of the same antibiotics. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I, I have to have that susceptibility testing. Yeah, that makes sense. This this must have changed, right, recently, because, I, and I can remember within the past five to eight years myself, you know, seeing patients who have failed treatment and then, you know, performing repeat endoscopy, getting more biopsies and trying to send these out for culture and sensitivity and frequently being frustrated uh, that the samples were insufficient or I didn't use the right medium for that specific lab. I mean, this to me, and, and again, not being an expert in this area, but this seems like this is this is markedly changed over the past year or two. Well, availability has changed, but not necessarily what you're talking about, because, for example, some of the labs like Mayo Clinic only wants it in saline. Mm. And that's a really crappy transport media. So mm-hmm. your, your, your culture rate is going to be low. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another lab uh, that, that's called, uh, uh, what is it called? It's called Molecular um, Forming Microbiology Specialists. Okay. They, they, and they use the right media, which is brucella broth with, with uh, uh, glycerol. So that you freeze it immediately. And therefore, you're going to get 90% plus. Uh, so if you're if you're not getting good results, you just either change labs or go to molecular where it doesn't make any difference. Right. In fact, you can with the molecular, you can go back and find the block and send the block, the, the pair from block and get, get the susceptibility tests. So you yeah. don't need to re-endoscope the patient. So all this is this year. Interesting. So all these things are just becoming available. So uh, it, it makes it 
much simpler. So it seems like that this will take away, um, you know, those 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 treatment regimens that were reserved for refractory cases in which you you sort of extended out real long duration of time, how long you had these patients on antibiotics for a sort of sequential therapy. I mean, is there, is there still going to be a role for that? Or do you think these, this testing is going to be able to do away with that? What we did actually in the past is that people just had another antibiotic. Yeah. So they said, well, it's, it, they're resistant maybe to metronidazole and not to clarithromycin or vice versa. So I'll just give them all four antibiotics. So everybody got one antibiotic they didn't need. Mm-hmm. And when you add it up, it's thousands or tens of thousands of kilograms of unnecessary antibiotic use that we were giving. And we did it because it worked. But we don't need to do that anymore. So I think those therapies are all now, uh, any therapy has got two antibiotics in it you can't justify as obsolete. And then a new thing, of course, is coming along is eventually we'll get this finiprazam. Mm. And that, that new super PPI and and amoxicillin as dual therapy uh, is effective. Now, the one that they tested wasn't effective. They didn't do uh, the preliminary testing to figure out what worked before they did the clinical trial. And and they're doing that around, everybody's doing that around the world now to work out how you do it. But in, in most countries, it may require longer duration, different dosing, et cetera. So really, will change everything. It'll become something the GP can do without right. even talking to anybody. Yeah, very interesting. Well, this has been—it's uh, not only has it been enlightening for me to learn a little bit more about H. pylori, but um, as I said earlier in the in the introductions, it's to be honest with you, David, it's really um, an honor to be talking to somebody who's, as I said, you know, devoted. Uh, over 30 years and longer, I'm sure, of your career to studying one topic and truly a world's expert. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and speaking uh, speaking to us about this. Very glad to be here. Okay. Well, thank you again, listeners, for tuning in to Listen In GI Endoscopy. I look forward to seeing you next month. Thank you again. Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at ASGE.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.